0: Welcome to Fifth Wall's Building to Zero podcast. The real estate industry is the world's single largest contributor to climate change. At Fifth Wall, we're on a mission to help the industry eradicate its carbon emissions and build to zero. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. In this very special edition of Building to Zero, I speak with U.S. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, who dials in from his office at the Capitol building to discuss climate change policy and the real estate industry. The Senator shares thoughts on carbon taxes for buildings and what he describes as the real estate industry's equivalent of cash for clunkers. He also shares what he believes real estate CEOs would be stunned to find out about their lobbying presence in Washington and how the industry can use collective action to drive meaningful change. Enjoy the conversation. Senator Whitehouse, thank you so much for joining. Where are you zooming in from today?
1: Zooming in from um, the U.S. Capitol building, uh, where I have, um, like many senators, a small hideaway office.
0: I'm really excited to talk to you about climate change, and in particular, the role the real estate industry has and is kind of culpable In obviously what would come to be known as as climate change. You've made 250 speeches about climate change on the Senate floor. And this has all been since the collapse of cap and trade in 2010. And I guess, you know, as this has been come to be known as the time to wake up address, if you were to look back at the beginning of it, what instigated you to start giving these speeches? What was the impetus for you?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Somewhere between despondency and desperation. Um, We had um, cap and trade passed, thanks to Nancy Pelosi. Um, We had 60 Democrats in the Senate. We were filibuster proof. We didn't have to worry about a presidential veto. We had a democratic president and the decision was taken to just walk away The Senate wasn't gonna take up any measure, not even a cipher of a bill that could have gotten us into conference with the House so we could see what could perhaps be worked out, whether Republican support could be uh, attracted where we could potentially solve a problem. Um, The decision was made just to walk away. And with that went virtually all of the conversation about climate change and there were some very bleak years um, in which, um, if you knew what was going on, you could see the menace coming at us. You could see the clouds looming and the thunder rumbling. And, um, we had a chance to do something big about it then. And we just walked away and there wasn't plan B. The walking away was a full-on walk away. And what was it? Five years later, we finally got around to, a clean power plan, but that was so poorly written that the five justices on the court could blow it up to smithereens before it even became effective. So those were some, some uh, grim grim years. And I figured, well, the very least thing I can do is to make a pledge to myself that I was gonna talk about it every single damned week that the Senate was in session and maybe like the little pilot light in the stove when conditions came and you could turn the gas back on and we get back to work again. Um, until that happened, I was going to be like the little pilot light. And with Biden in, with the people he's chosen, with the message that he sent about the primacy of, uh, of a climate solution to uh, all of his cabinet and to us in Congress, I've turned off the pilot light. I gave my last one, number 279. It's not one and done. It's 279 and done. But I've turned it off and now we're working on how to get a bill passed. Wow. And I I guess, you know, some of the
0: speeches obviously have touched on particular sectors of the economy, right? And the real estate industry, as we were discussing before this call, is extremely culpable in the climate crisis. Responsible for about 30% of all energy consumption, 30% of all greenhouse gas emissions, and it's responsible for 40% of all raw material consumption. And have, have you focused on the real estate industry? And a related question is, You know, the real estate industry has kind of skirted the spotlight in the climate debate. And I don't have a great explanation as to why. I'm curious as to why you think that's the case.
1: Uh, That's a good question. And I don't think I have a good answer to it. Um, You know, the thematic image of climate change is industrial and utility and chemical And oil and gas infrastructure, Um, you know, gulching smoke and steam and, um, you know, sitting on landscapes. It's hard to create the same images about a boiler in a building or um, any of that. A lot of people are focused on the lead building movement and the greening of uh, real estate. So I think um, real estate has gotten a reputational break in all of this. Um, I also think there's some quandaries that real estate is stuck with, um, where you have, for instance, an owner of a building and tenants who pay the utility bills. um, Who fixes the building so that it becomes greener and less of an energy hog? Um, The landlord doesn't, the owner doesn't particularly care to because the tenants are paying the utility bill. So, they're not going to be paid back out of savings, and the tenants don't particularly care too, because why the hell would you do capital improvements in somebody else's building? So you get these kind of economic log jams where it's a little bit hard to find who the party is to blame. So I would suggest those are probably the two prime reasons. But nature may have its way with the real estate industry. And it may be that we don't need to provide blame. Uh, the penalty will come through by, through the hands of nature. Yeah, there's a kind of um, ethical,
0: poetic justice to the fact that the real estate industry is so contributive to climate change, and yet it is inherently the most immovable industry, and then therefore the most subject to and liable to climate yeah. change. And it's I It's so that, exposed. It is so exposed. And I think it's interesting because to some extent that imperative that little you, know, you have buildings that are in you know areas that are extremely affected by climate change areas that may be underwater within 100 years because of that it's forcing an urgency that i think we haven't seen in the real estate industry before but one of the other things you mentioned that i thought was really interesting is this bifurcation between landlord and tenant and i think one of the challenges has always been that when we state facts like the real estate industry is responsible for 30% of all well, energy consumption, in fact, what that actually means is the tenants inside the buildings are consuming 30% of the energy. But what's interesting is that with some of the new carbon neutrality laws at a local level, when a building is responsible, right? When they're actually measure their electricity consumption, the bill and the fine is going to get sent to the address. It's not going to get sent to the tenant. So what's interesting is that Regulation to some extent serves as a wedge to almost force the real estate owners to compel adoption in their tenants, right? Because the tenants might not care, but the landlords now have a very strong incentive to decarbonize at an operational level and also at an embodied level
1: because those bills are getting sent to the assets as well. Yeah. And some of that can be solved pretty readily. I mean, one of the things that we saw with residential solar was that if you had to finance residential solar you are now in trouble because the mortgage on your property and the loan on your residential solar didn't integrate. And if you needed to sell your house, that became very complicated as how you dealt with paying off the mortgage and paying off the loan. And um, that was, I think in most places solved by agreements between political agreements between the mortgage industry and the solar industry about where in the, in the debt stack uh, the new loan for the new solar uh, equipment would be paid. And once that was solved, it became a non-problem, and everybody went on about their business. Until it was solved, it was a huge problem. And I think uh, some of this landlord-tenant stuff falls into that same category. It's a, it's a solvable problem, but people have to solve it, and then it goes away.
0: And I'm curious to get your view also. You know, one of the unfortunate characteristics of the climate change debate is that it's become partisan, right? It has become so inherently partisan, I think, especially so in the last four years. And I guess you've tried to reconcile that, right? And kind of create bipartisan support for yeah. climate mitigation. So, so, how
1: have you let me done? I'll give you my, my two cents on that. Because I got elected in 2006. So I got sworn in by Dick Cheney in uh, 2007. And all through 2007, through 2008, through 2009, climate was very bipartisan in the Senate. We had four or five different bills. We had the uh, senator who carried the Republican Party's flag into the presidential contest, John McCain, also carry a strong climate platform. So I've actually lived the experience of this not being partisan. And then in January of 2010, the Supreme Court decided to let unlimited money into politics in a case called Citizens United. And literally from the day of that decision, we couldn't get bipartisanship on one more serious climate bill. And that's because that new political weaponry that the fossil fuel industry was granted was brought by the industry to bear on the Republican Party. And it, the party was subjugated by that political force. And people like McCain had to back off their positions. People like Bob Inglis lost primaries. It was a um, purge. And you either had to stop talking about climate or give up. And. So for the decade since it is United, we've lived through this apparent partisanship. You're not wrong to observe that phenomenon. But having spent time here and talking to Republican senators still, and by the way, talking to Republican senators about climate is like talking to prisoners about escape. They like, they're happy to have the conversation. They'd love to find a way out, but they sure don't want the warden to know that you're talking to them. And um, so, It's actually not that partisan. There is latent bipartisanship to be achieved. It's just that the fossil fuel industry with those new political tools squelched the bipartisanship and made it look partisan.
0: Hmm. And so what you're saying is almost that with Citizen United, all this capital was enfranchised that had a strong point of view to render climate change a partisan issue and it almost Weaponize the issue and turn it into like polemic for both parts. Well, for one party at least.
1: Yeah. When it's and binary, you only have to control one party to make it look partisan.
0: Yeah, I guess that's true. Maybe I'm just too young to recall the days when it wasn't actually a, a partisan issue, but it just seemed to me, it seems apparent as uh, as an observer that yeah. it has unfortunately become partisan.
1: But I guess that's totally how it works for the fossil fuel industry to have people think that it's partisan. Because A, you throw up your hands, what can we do about partisanship? And B, nobody looks as to who done it. Right, right. And I guess, you know,
0: we're two weeks into the Biden Harris administration, and they've made some, I think, pretty bold moves, or at least bold yep. within the standard of the last four years, which is kind of coming in the aftermath of probably the most I would say environmentally progressive administration in recent memory but we've re-entered the Paris Climate Agreement. And I guess if you were to look four years out, what would you view as successful climate policy? Um, What would be a success case for you?
1: I think our task, our test of success is that credible modeling shows that we are on a path to 1.5 degrees or less global warming. And how we get there, I think we can leave a little bit up to the legislative process. Um, I personally happen to think that when you look at the scale of the subsidy that fossil fuel enjoys in America, the International Monetary Fund calls it over $600 billion every year. You can't offset that kind of a subsidy without putting a price on carbon the it's economically wrong to allow an industry to have negative externalities that they dump on the public instead of having it baked into the price. So for a whole lot of of, reasons, that's 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 the point of government after all, right? That's why you have government externalities. Yeah. I mean, even Milton Friedman, who hated government more than anybody as a a really conservative economist said, OK, this is one of the reasons that we actually have government. You got an army, you got police at the corner and you've got negative externalities. Um, So I I just don't see that we get to 1.5 degrees without pricing carbon. But if there's a way to do it, I think we can't let the techniques be the thing that drive us. We've gotta have the goal always be, are we gonna hit 1.5 degrees or not? I think as a sidebar, it would be nice to get rid of dark and anonymous money in politics, because I think what has prevented us from solving this already has been this very corrupting influence of huge amounts of anonymous money and we're going to look pretty crappy as a city on a hill when people, you know, take a really good look at why we've been absent on climate for so long and who was behind it and why they let it work. Why did American democracy fail? So I'd love to see us root out the, the dark money and be on the path to 1.5 degrees. And I guess one thing that, that is inspiring is when
0: you look at Europe, Right, Europe has not had the experience of the last four years, or it sounds like really the, the last the last eleven years, by your experience. Enough. And technology and innovation has continued inexorably to actually solve many of the scientific problems that make clean energy possible. Yeah, and I think that's really inspiring. And I think the question is now, how do we create the incentives for adoption? And I guess because we talk to so many people in the real estate industry as you think about what's imminent for climate policy and the Biden-Harris administration and what's going to come through the legislature, like what what would you advise a real estate CEO to do today to adopt a forward posture with respect to climate mitigation and accepting their responsibility in
1: climate change? I think um, step one would be to show up in Congress and make sure that your voice is being heard because right now the fossil fuel industry shows up in Congress with munitions and the rest of corporate America really doesn't show up at all. And to the extent that they do show up, they ordinarily show up through trade associations, which tend to operate at the level of sort of lowest uh, optimism and performance of the industry they represent. So you have like the National Association of Manufacturers and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce that have been outed as the worst two climate obstructors in America because the fossil fuel industry got into them and co-opted them and turned them into climate obstacles. Um, you look at the American Beverage Association, Coke and Pepsi have great policies. American Beverage Association makes zero effort on climate, don't, doesn't show up insurance industry, which is behind so much of real estate, has huge equities here. I mean, real trouble. And yet the American Insurance Association doesn't care about it. The big lobby group for Silicon Valley, which makes such wonderful noise about how green all those companies are, TechNet, uh, they've just decided since Biden was elected that they're going to amend their lobbying pitch to Congress uh, for this Congress to include climate change. Because last year, They didn't have a word on climate change in 13 pages of lobbying desires from Congress. So you stack all that up and what you have is a a world in which a Republican in Congress not only sees that fossil fuel threat, but they also look at the rest of corporate America and nobody's there. It's not just nobody's on the field, the benches are empty. So the organizations that lobby for the real estate industry If I were a CEO in real estate, I would go to those organizations and say, convince me that you're protecting my interests in getting this climate problem solved before we have the wipeout that Freddie Mac is warning about in coastal property values. What are you doing? I would would ask for an audit of my company, uh, an audit of its lobbying presence, and if you're contributing to a trade association, an audit of what that trade association has been up to. I think CEOs would be stunned to find that their lobbying presence in Congress has been doing the exact opposite of what their public facing statements have said their intent is. Or it sounds
0: like at the very least silent on these issues because from what I know, I don't know that
1: large. Best, is- case, best case, silent. Right. Worst case, And of course, you know, in a fight like this, silence is deafening. There is no such thing as being silent when something this big is going on. Your silence is just as important as anything you might say. If, um, you know, sometimes you can sit it out and say, that's not my fight. Climate is everybody's fight. And if you're silent, you're saying something. And the real estate
0: industry needs a voice, I think. You know, like you were just talking about it is, it is inherently just so exposed, like it's, it's, it's exposure to climate change at an existential level yeah. is real. It's, it's imminent. I mean, there, yeah. there are landlords in Miami and in coastal cities that I think are, are really like five to ten years out from big existential functional obsolescence questions with respect to their assets. And it sounds like what you're saying is that, you know, to the extent the real estate industry's lobbying arms. Are uncorrupted by the fossil fuel industry, which I think it's safe to say, safe to assume they are today. Um, really, what they need to do is kind of solve this collective action problem by saying, "How are we ensuring that Congress and the executive branch is enacting laws that actually encourage us to do the right thing and actually achieve the right outcomes?" Because what's interesting is that you know in kind of green tech 1.0 some of the big challenges were that a lot of the technology wasn't imminently adoptable, right? It wasn't viable to actually deploy. Today it is, meaning yeah. in addition to the kind of the ethical imperative, it actually makes economic sense to deploy, but the real estate owners just don't know what to do. And so so much of what we struggle with, and it sounds like what you're encouraging the industry to do, is overcome this core collective action problem, which is, yes. in essence, what climate change constantly <laughs> seems to reduce itself to.
1: Yeah, it's a core collective action, collective action problem. And um, in that it is a collective action problem, one of the things about it is that if everybody actually acts collectively, the threat to anybody who might act alone dissipates so much that it essentially vanishes. I think if one company were to come into Congress and make a big fuss about climate change, the fossil fuel industry would find ways through its functionaries in Congress to make that company pay a price. So when CEOs say, I can't come in and lobby about climate change because there'll be repercussions, that's not an unreasonable sentiment. That's not an imaginary concern. But if you're organized, they can't punish everyone. And uh, collective action actually immunizes itself from the threat that necessitates the collective action.
0: You know, what's interesting is the real estate industry, it kind of sits at the epicenter of like these three triangulated forces that are compelling it to decarbonize. It's like one, you have pressure from capital markets, right? Everyone from the BlackRock, Larry Fink's letter, like it's yeah. there. The real estate industry is nothing other than a capital markets, yeah. right? That, that is in essence what the, the industry is. On the other hand, you have regulators, and this unique feature of real estate that you can't move a building makes it so subject to local regulations. So like what happened in New York and what happened in Los Angeles, it doesn't matter what your politics are, where your building is, its jurisdiction determines, right, whether you're going to be fined or not for carbon neutrality. Now we're probably going to have it at a federal level. But what's, yeah. what's really interesting about what you're saying is that the fossil fuel industry seems to have this ability to infiltrate the the... Uh, the trade and the lobbying organizations for many industries. But the real estate industry is subject to downstream leasing pressure from some big tech companies, for example, like Google and Amazon that are very publicly committed to decarbonizing. And most people don't think about this, but when Amazon commits to decarbonizing, they implicitly commit their entire supply chain to decarbonizing. And people don't think of the real estate industry as being part of a supply chain, but it most definitely is. Data centers, warehouses, office buildings, So there's just so many economic imperatives for the real estate industry to adopt this offensive posture. And it is is kind of your hope that the Biden-Harris administration creates an environment where an industry that hasn't yet had a voice feels comfortable engaging at a national level in federal climate policy. Is Is that the kind of culture and environment you're trying to create in the new administration?
1: Exactly. And I think that's also the kind of environment that they're trying to create. I mean, I've known Joe Biden. He was a, he was a senior senator when I first got here, and we've known each other well uh, ever since. And he is not a person who is out to uh, harm others or embarrass others. He's a team player, and um, I think to the extent that his administration can assemble that team around him so that various industries in corporate America feel comfortable to say, okay, this is the day I get off the couch. This is the day I come out of the locker room. This is the day I suit up for this game. And uh, together, we're going to solve this problem. This is not a problem that it's actually technically hard to solve. It's a problem of political will and political obstruction. And it's a political problem, but the economics of how you decarbonize and the um, uh, social questions of how you do so fairly and actually perhaps improve the uh, economic justice of our country at the same time, that you could figure out in the better part of an afternoon if there weren't all these malicious fingers in the gears trying to stop things from happening. And so that's why we need the uh, cavalry to show up from the um, more disinterested parts of corporate America than the fossil fuel industry and step in and say, "Okay, we're we're here now and we're going to help solve this.
0: And, you know, for industries like the real estate industry that it it sounds like haven't had much and have been, as you were saying, at best silent. I guess there are a lot of really progressive, uh, I would say, environmentally forward, thoughtful um often millennial ceos of these businesses yeah. and it's a the dynastic shift <clears throat> and the younger generation is taking over and these ceos really care and i guess when you're encouraging them to take action at the federal level um is it really through the industry trade groups like there are groups like NARI um and uli that are obviously influential and are kind of these you know collective organizations that that supposedly embody the real estate industry's collective interests? Or would you encourage them to kind of reach out at a state or local level? Like what's the be- best path of action?
1: I think um, it's really important to make sure that the trade associations are in the right place. Um, first of all, as I said, trade associations don't tend to represent the most aspirational and forward-thinking aspects of any particular industry. They're usually kind of covering for the laggards. Um, they tend to focus on, you know, how real estate investment tr- trusts are treated for tax purposes or what, you know, the tax loss carry forward is for certain types of uh, properties. And they're not looking at much that's a big picture as climate, particularly because they know they're stepping into a fight if they do. So, the flip side of that coin is that if you're a Republican senator and you're looking around to see if the industry is serious about this, your best measure of whether the industry is serious about this is whether it's got its trade association sorted out in the right direction. If people are speaking to their uh, you know, home city chamber of commerce or writing an op-ed in the uh, Sacramento paper or whatever, Um, But the trade association hasn't changed its behavior. Then in my world, all of that is fluff. And what matters is what you bring into our house. And what you bring into our house primarily comes in through uh, the trade associations. So um, it's a hard signal to overcome if you haven't corrected the trade associations.
0: And and last question I want to ask you is, you know, so much of, what is talked about in, uh, call it climate mitigation for the real estate industry is green buildings, right? So yeah. build newer, more efficient buildings, which is great and one part of the problem. But the reality we all face is that most of the buildings the economy happens in are already built and they already have a lot of embodied carbon and they were built inefficiently. And so yeah. there's, there has to be massive capital deployment into with inter- inter- And that happens to align, it sounds like, with the Biden-Harris administration's agenda around job creation. How do you think we call more attention to the opportunity for environmental retrofitting of the existing building stock? And how is the jobs creation potential of that made more clear to the public?
1: Yeah, I think there are a couple of ways to do that. Obviously, you know, we're going to be doing Build Back Better quite soon after we get the COVID bill done. That's going to be a big infrastructure bill. It's going to have a huge climate component to it. So in that climate component can be support for those kind of retroactive investments to bring old buildings uh, up to par. Um, I think if you put a proper price on carbon, then the market signals of how much you're spending to heat that clunker of a building uh, begin to help the decision-making on their own. Between the two of them, the uh, signal I think can get pretty strong um, and then there's that reputational piece that once people start, you know, looking at this, and it's only a short step until the big investors start looking uh, at this. I mean, the big investors are nervous because they're reading from all the central banks warnings about a global systemic economic collapse. They're reading the separate Freddie Mac report about uh, coastal property value crash. Both can happen. One on you can have a carbon bubble burst and a coastal property value crash caused by sea level rise, storm risk, and inability to insure and mortgage a property at the same time, cumulative. So they're looking at, oh my God, this is gonna be like 2008, but way worse. We gotta help fix this. And if they start looking around, they're gonna pretty soon be looking at real estate uh, investments as well. So there's a lot that we can do to be um, helpful in that regard. I'd go back also, I think, to trying to solve some of these little quandaries like the alignment of interest between the tenant and the owner not permitting anybody to make the right decision because the decision has been broken up into incompatible pieces with uh, the result that you want. Um, Any help on that would be much appreciated by anybody who's got a brilliant idea out there. Um, But I think we will be putting infrastructure, serious infrastructure money in, and the real estate industry should be lining up for the equivalent of cash for clunkers. And um, we need to get a proper price on carbon so that the market actually works and doesn't drive itself towards um, these cliffs that we're headed at now.
0: Well, Senator, I I just wanna say um, one, I'm very passionate about this issue, and so is, obviously, Fifth Thank you. So, we can do to help um, with your agenda and all the hard work that you've put in in the last 11 years, uh, last 279 speeches, as you were saying, we want to do. So um, yeah. I just want to say thank you. Well, this is the time.
1: This I'm is, super optimistic. Uh, I really think this is the time, and I think y- you mentioned collective action. This is the time for America to show the world what we are capable of as a government and as an economy and as a society. And for corporate leaders, this is a great moment to step up and do your part of showing the world what America can do.
0: Right, well, I hope everyone does. And I hope everyone heeds that call. And we're gonna do our part. And I just wanted to say, thank you, Senator. If there's anything we can ever do to support your initiatives and your agenda, this is such an important issue, we want to. Um, And thank you so much for taking the time to
1: chat. Good to be with you. Thank you so much for bringing attention.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Building to Zero. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com.